So Psalm 116, beginning in verse 1, let us hear God's word. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we uh, begin here today, I want you to uh, think back in your memory, maybe to a time where you or someone you know was in desperate straits and cried out to God for help and then promised to do something or some things that uh, if God basically helped in this situation, then uh, you or that other person would do. So uh, obviously if it's a life or death situation, someone might respond and say, God, if you get me out of this situation, then um, I'll become a missionary. Or others may say, if you get me out of this really hard situation at work or whatever it is, then I'm going to be more faithful at reading the Bible every day or, you know, something to that effect. Well, with this in mind, this is basically what we are seeing in this part of the psalm. The psalmist is telling us that he basically made promises to God. When he was lying there almost dead, he said, God, I will do X, Y, Z if you get me out of this. And so that is what we're going to see here primarily in this section. This near-death experience for the psalmist led him to love God, to pray more, and, of course, to write this psalm. And he proclaims God's character and ways here, uh, especially we saw see that in, in verse 5 and such. Uh, and this gives all of us assurance and peace and rest, even in the midst of our hardships. He also tells us there, especially in verses 10 and 11, that ultimately we cannot trust humans. They fail us. Now, they may be helpful to some degree, but compared to God, <clears throat> they are going to fail us. But Yahweh, on the other hand, is trustworthy, especially when we are at the bottom. So call on him, trust in him, rest in him, be at peace, even in our hardships. Well, last time, you may recall, we concluded by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
where Paul quotes verse 10. And this is not surprising because Israel sang this psalm every year at Passover. So this is a familiar passage to them. Well, today we come to this section, which includes verse 15. And that is a rather familiar verse to many of us. And as I always say, when we come across one of these, let's make sure we're understanding it in its context. And uh, we're um, uh, basically getting the right idea from it and not just pulling it out and applying it wrongly. All right, well, the psalmist here has responded to Yahweh's grace to him by loving, verse 1, by praying, verses 2 and 4, by trusting, verse 7, And now this section primarily is about his response to Yahweh. Once again, we don't know why he was near to death. Maybe he was sick. Maybe somebody was chasing him. Maybe he was in battle. We don't know for sure. But notice now what he says. Let's start here in verse 12, again using uh, my translation here. What shall I pay back to Yahweh for all of his benefits upon me? All right, so he comes here with a question. Now, you remember we saw in verse 7 that the psalmist is clearly speaking to himself, right? Oh, my soul, you need to do these things, right? Uh, Well, this one isn't quite as clear, but it does sound like uh, the psalmist is speaking to himself again. What shall I do? And and maybe he did speak to himself uh, in the midst of it in this way. Making promises and such. Maybe this is after the fact, but whatever the case, he begins with this question and says, uh, to the, What am I going to give to Yahweh now that he has saved my life? Plus, I think the second line seems to expand the point, not merely that he preserved him from death, but all the benefits that God gives. And of course, he gives many. Stan was reciting a few of those in Sunday school this morning. Uh, There's so many things that God has given. Now, to answer this question, on the one hand, we would say nothing. What can we give to God? Nothing. He's God. He he doesn't need anything. And whatever we do give just pales in significance compared to what he has done for us. It's like he gives us, as it were, millions of dollars, and we think giving him a dollar bill is going to be all that beneficial or, or whatever, but you know the comparison is just so uh, vast and striking that you know, what can we give God? And, and the answer ultimately is nothing. On the other hand, God does want us to respond to him, to give of ourselves to him, to keep our promises when we've made promises like the psalmist has done here. And so we do respond to God. Yes, it's, you know, like your small child giving you something that's really not all that valuable, but they think this is a great deal. And, and you treat it that way. And God does something similar uh, with us in that way. Now, notice that uh, as you uh, start looking uh, in verses 13 and following, that it says, I will six different times in the rest of uh, the psalm. You see it in verses 13 and 14 and in verses 17 and 18. And so he says, I will do this. What shall I render to God? Well, I will do this. This is what I'm going to give. And so in verse 13, then we see two of them. A cup of salvations I will raise. And on the name of Yahweh, I will call. All right. Now notice, first of all, 
how the I will is at the end of each one of these lines. Okay. Now, again, most of the time our English translations smooth out some of these things and, and you lose something in that. It's not that it's wrong per se, but it's um, missing some of the, I think in this case, some of the humility of the psalmist. He doesn't put himself first. He puts these other things first. He puts himself at the end of these lines. And we see that with all six of them. And so the cups, cup of salvations, I will raise. On Yahweh's name, I will call. And so again, it seems to be highlighting God and minimizing himself by saying it this way. Now, as for the cup of salvations, note it's plural, first of all. Uh, cup of salvations, it says. Uh, probably to emphasize that God has saved him on multiple occasions. Now, it's possible that saving him from death, there were many aspects to that, and that's what he's talking about. Uh, but he's probably including that along with some other things. If this is David or someone like David who is running for his life, God obviously did save him on multiple occasions. So whatever the situation, notice he's referring to more than one thing. Um, and then... Notice he says, uh, on the name of Yahweh, I will call due to the vows that he's uh, given. And we'll see that there in verse 14. Notice that it is uh, fulfilled in the presence of the people. So he's calling on Yahweh in a public sense. And this also gives us some direction of cup of salvations. What does that mean? Well, if you look down at verse 17, uh, notice the second line, on the name of Yahweh, I will call. It's identical to the second line in verse 13. Look at verse 18. It's identical to verse 14. So of these four lines in each place, the only thing that's different is the first line in verse 13 and the first line in verse 17. So as we put those together, and verse 17 clearly is talking about a sacrifice, it leads us to say that the cup of salvations here in verse 13 is referring to an actual cup. Not just a figurative idea, but an actual cup. And so, <clears throat> assuming this is true, and, and it makes most sense to think this way, I think, um, that they would take an actual cup, they would fill it with wine, they would raise it up to God, and they would thank him for something that he has done, and then they would take a drink of it and pour the rest on the altar and burn it with the rest of the sacrifices. And so this is called a drink offering. And so we have the sacrifice of thanksgiving in verse 17. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Here we're talking about a drink offering. And so publicly, the psalmist is going to thank God by giving a thank, excuse me, a drink offering and basically telling everyone how God had saved him. Now, <clears throat> in a more figurative sense, we could say God had been giving him the cup of wrath. Again, he was sick or he's being chased or whatever it is. It's a war or something like that. Uh, so they were suffering. Death was just around the corner. But God, at the last moment, it seems, takes that cup away and gives him the cup of salvation instead. So there is a figurative idea here, but I think he's literally going to the temple and holding up a cup and, and dumping it and such on the sacrifice. All right, now, so more in regard to the second line. 
On the name of Yahweh, I will call. All right, remember in verse 2, he said something very similar. Throughout my days, I will call. Verse 4, the first line, on the name of Yahweh, I am calling. Uh, Here now, we see the same language. In the midst of distress, the psalmist was calling on Yahweh, and now it says he's going to do it in this way as he fulfills his vows, and he's going to continue to do it, uh, especially there in verse 2. And so, um, do you see the point of application? So, in light of some of the things I've talked about the last couple weeks, we can call on Yahweh in the midst of our struggle. Even if that struggle is caused by me and my sin. And it's good, we must do this. We can call on him on a daily basis, every day, whether it's a good day or a bad day or whatever, not just when we are in need. And so the idea of praying without ceasing is uh, assumed here as we piece these different verses together. Um, And so when things are going well, praise God, thank him. When they're hard, cry out for help. And uh, so here is the psalmist now, after the fact, coming to the Lord and calling on him, primarily here to thank him for what he has done. You know, our tendency when life is hard, when we're going through some kind of hardship, is that uh, we, we turn to the Lord. We pray to him, help me, Lord, right? And then when things go back to normal, we tend to not talk to the Lord quite so much. Maybe we'll thank him right away, and of course that's good. But as, as the, the mountains get lower and the valleys get higher and the paths become more straight in our lives, we tend to start thinking we can do things on our own. But as he says, again, going back to verse 2, throughout all my days, let's call on the Lord. Not just in the midst, not just right after the hardship, but uh, every day. And so, again, you see the importance for the, the psalmist here and on prayer. All right, as always, we could say more. Let's look now at verse 14. My vows to Yahweh I will repay in the presence now of all of his people. All right, another I will. And again, notice it's at the end of the line here, again, highlighting uh, his humility, focusing on Yahweh here. Um, So even though he says my vows to Yahweh at the beginning uh, of that line, um, I, I still think it's, it's emphasizing not look at what I've done, but look what God has done, and I'm just paying back. I'm just responding humbly and gratefully. All right, now, as for the vows, <clears throat> um, if you go back to what I started with in the introduction, um, probably most of us have done something like this, where in a time of, of hardship, we have made a promise to God. If he would help, we would respond in some way. Uh, Maybe uh, you've thought, I'm just going to go to church more. I'm going to read my Bible more, or I'm going to stop drinking so much, or watching TV, or not being on my smartphone so much, or maybe I'm going to help somebody, or maybe I'm going to give money. Fill in the blank. There are all kinds of things that we can promise God. Um, But when we have made those promises in the midst of our desperation, Keep them. Don't forget about it. Keep the promises you have made. Whether you've made a formal promise by taking an official vow or as just something you've done in your bedroom or something when you're crying out to the Lord, let's keep our promises. He knows. 
what we've said, and so let's, uh, let's do that. Let's fulfill the, our vows just like the psalmist. Now, in the Old Testament, um, their primary way of vowing in this way is, was to offer a sacrifice. So let's just say for sake of explanation and, and, and understanding here that this psalmist had three bulls and 30 sheep. Okay, so he was moderately wealthy, you could say, okay, middle class. Um, and and in the, on his deathbed, he promised to God, again, we're just making something up here, but let's just say he promised to give one bull and three of those sheep to the Lord. If God helped him in his situation, saved him from death, then this is what he would do. Well, now he's coming to, to fulfill that promise. Now think of it in this way. In uh, the ancient world, and even in parts of the world today, in agrarian cultures, if you had three bulls, that's kind of equivalent to having three cars. They're very valuable. And so think of it in that way. This man had three cars and 30 valuable things in regard to the sheep. And so maybe this would include a mower or a tiller or tractor or maybe some jewelry or your fridge or your freezer or something else that you have <clears throat> that is rather valuable. Maybe not as valuable as a car, but is valuable nonetheless. So here is this man who had promised, again, we're making this up, but he promised to give one of those cars to the Lord and three of those other things. You know, maybe he promised to, as it were, give God a freezer and a diamond ring and his tiller, you know. Obviously, I'm making this up. But do you see the point? Our tendency when we ask God to help us and we promise to do something if he does, our tendency is to not give God very much. But here is this man, and, and even though I've made up this scenario, this isn't all that far-fetched. That here is a man who is going to give something that's can you say going to hurt him? It's going to cost him? These things are valuable. Okay. Right now we have two steer at our house that are ready for butchering as soon as the grass starts growing. We're going to let them feed for a little while. You know, if I were to give one of those up, that would be a big deal. I mean, that's our meat for the next year plus. Okay. So... <clears throat> When we make our promises, let's make them with great sincerity and even that will cost us a little bit. And when things are over, let's keep our promises. And this man is doing this. Notice once again this public focus. <clears throat> okay. It's assumed in verse 13, and now it's stated specifically in verse 14. Show everyone that you are keeping your promises. By doing it publicly, on the one hand, it helps us, right? If we've made a promise and we publicly fulfill that promise, it's helping to keep us accountable. By telling others that we have made this promise and, and it, that God has answered our prayers and so forth, and now we're fulfilling those vows, this encourages other people. Maybe vows that they have taken and maybe have yet to fulfill. Or maybe it encourages you for something in the future. And, and so on. So by doing it publicly, it encourages other people that they can trust God and uh, can keep their promises. 
The psalmist, we know, goes to the temple. Verse 19 tells us that. Uh, We obviously are not going to go to Jerusalem to a temple, or a temple wall even. (laughs) But we can come to church, and we can do something similar. We just had a time of of sharing and prayer requests here right before the service. It's a perfect opportunity for us to publicly share how God has answered a prayer, and uh, that we've made some promises and so forth. There are certainly ways for us to do the same kind of thing. So, here's what the psalmist is doing. He is uh, uh, fulfilling his vows. All right, now, verses 15 and 16 seem like an interruption. And uh, maybe he's just calling us back to things he said before, but I'm inclined to think that it fits with his public vows. So, verse 15 says, Precious in the eyes of Yahweh is the death in regard to his covenant love ones. All right. Most of your translations are going to smooth that out. Um, and you, many of them will say saints at the end of the second line or possibly faithful ones or something to that effect. Um, uh, this is actually the word, the Hebrew word chesed. I've used that term many times. This is the, this covenant word that emphasizes being in the covenant, and in particular, covenant love. So the initial idea is that God shows love toward us. He enters into covenant relationship with us. He makes us members of his covenant of grace. And so the idea here then is death in regard to his covenant loved ones, you could say death in regard to those who are in the covenant, those whom God has saved. So hence, saints is not a bad translation. Just recognize it's a paraphrase. But those who are part of the covenant, this is who he's talking about. So uh, here is the psalmist, and he's gone to the temple. And verse 13, he's pouring out this drink offering. And maybe as he is doing that, he says verse 15. It does not clearly say that. But the fact that it's sandwiched between verses 13 and 14 and 17 to 19, suggests that he said these words as he was offering up these sacrifices. So here is a man who has just been saved from death, and he is saying, those of you who love God, fellow believers, fellow members of the covenant, we are precious to our God. And so, too, is our death. And so when those who are true believers, those who are members of the church, this kind of idea, it tell, he's telling us that we are precious in God's sight. Not surprisingly, he uses the name Yahweh here, right? In the precious in the eyes of Yahweh, our covenant Lord, the one who is the Lord of the covenant of grace. We are precious to him, dear to him, highly valued, costly. We are worth much in his eyes. If valuables, excuse me, if birds are so valuable that not one of them falls without God taking notice and caring and so forth, how much more for us? And so this is such an encouragement. We are so valuable to God that our death is precious to him. 
Our death is so precious to him that he sent his own son to die in our place so that we do not have to die eternally. We're likely going to die temporally, unless Christ comes back first, but we do not have to die eternally. We just read about this with Jesus. He dies in our place. The creator of the universe and the sun goes dark and so forth. All this happens as he died. And that is an indication of how precious we are to God. Like Isaac on the altar, Yahweh provided a substitute to spare us from death. Jesus, of course, you remember in the garden, he wanted the cup of wrath to be taken from him. He wanted those bonds of death to be loosed for him. But he obeyed even until death so that we can live forever so that we can be raised from life, rescued from eternal death, and have the cup of salvation. We're this precious to our God. The gospel tells us this, but it also is the message when God protects us from temporal death. I believe I've mentioned at least on one other occasion that there's a, uh, an animated show that our family enjoys. It's called The Torchlighters. And it's on TV a couple times a week, and so we just have it automatically to record and so on. And so uh, after it does, I always check and see if we have that episode. And if if we do, I delete it, and if not, I put it in a folder and all that. Um, Well, anyway, I was checking this the other day, and I uh, started playing and wanted to figure out which one it was. And it turned out to be the story of John Wesley. And the way they began the program was... Uh, the fire that engulfed their home. And uh, everybody had gotten out except for John. He was stuck on the second floor. And uh, eventually he was able to jump out and they caught him and so forth. But um, his mother came running up to him with tears of joy and basically says, John, God has something special for you. He has preserved your life. She didn't use the word precious, but obviously you're precious to him. He has spared you. And of course, we know about John Wesley. (laughs) The Methodist Church was as a result of of God's work in him and so forth. Um, But it's not just the John Wesleys of the world that are precious in God's sight, right? That second line, in regard to his covenant loved ones, all who are members of the covenant. All who have been saved are precious to our God. And so the gospel tells us that, but when he spares us from death, that is a, if you will, up close and personal way for us to see this. Our death may not get as much press as John Wesley. Our death may not get as much response as others, but God notices and he cares about us. They are precious. Sometimes he spares us that death for a time. But eventually we are going to die, again, unless Christ comes, but we are spared the eternal death. And so the adversity that comes our way is not outside God's power, but not, it's also not outside God's care. And so, again, the text doesn't say specifically, but it is quite likely that as he is pouring out this cup of wine onto the altar, he said these words. Such an encouragement to us. Again, here's this familiar verse to many of us. 
Somebody was telling me uh, here last week, I think it was, that they, they like using this verse when they write sympathy cards when somebody has died. Um, very, uh, very encouraging. Well, let's look then at verse 16. Ah, now, O Yahweh, because I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant, you have loosed in regard to my bonds. All right, now most of your translations are going to smooth out that first line. Hey, the new King James just says, O Lord, or O Yahweh. Uh, but it's more than that. Uh, that first word especially seems to be communicating a deep emotion. And so some of the commentators suggested different things, and I thought this one may, may be uh, the most helpful here. Ah, now. So, you know, there's, if you will, this general statement. God loves his people, verse 15. But now there is this emotional response by the psalmist himself. Not only do you love all the people in the covenant, but you've loved me. You've loosed my bonds, he says. And there's this emotional response. So again, it suggests to us that he's saying these things as he's pouring out the drink offering and offering the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so <clears throat> this emotion here is, is uttered by the psalmist. God cares for me. But note again his humility. I am your servant. And again, I am your servant. And then he says, the son of your maid servant. He doesn't say, I'm a member of the covenant. He doesn't say, I am a child of God. He doesn't say, I am a saint or any of these things, uh, which of course are true, but he just doesn't say that. Notice humility his gratitude, he is truly amazed that the God of the universe would help him and enable him to escape the trap of death. So as we started the psalm in verse 1, with God's love that he speaks of, or excuse me, about his love for God, I should say, now here, verse 16, we see a, a, a similar uh, idea, but again, more of this emotion coming out. So he's not merely saying, thanks God. He's not merely paying his debts and moving on. It's very personal, very emotional. And note all the yous here. Hey, your servant, you have loosed and so forth. So let's do the same. Let's remember we are precious to God, but then let's respond uh, with, with great emotion and relationship. All right, well, we come now to verse 17, and uh, as I've shown you already, verses 17 and 18 are very much like verses 13 and 14. Notice how it begins here then, to you I will sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and on the name of Yahweh I will call. Again, you see how personal it is. Back to verse 8, we have you, we just saw, saw that in verse 16, here it is again, to you Note again, the humility, I will, is not first in the line. It's uh, uh, second. And now he's talking about a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Let's turn a moment to Leviticus and chapter 7. All right, if you look at verses 11 and following here of Leviticus 7, 
Note what it says. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which we shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, you shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering is a heave offering to the Lord. Right? They're going to lift it up. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkle the blood of the peace offering. All right, now let me pause here and have us turn back to chapter 3. And uh, the whole of chapter 3 is a further description of the peace offering. And note especially there in verse 1, if you offer from the herd like a bull, hey, this is what you should do. In verse 6, if you offer from the flock like one a sheep, right? This is what you're supposed to do. Uh, you see also the goat there in verse verse twelve. Um, so the peace offering can be used in a variety of ways. When it's used specifically as a thank offering, now back here to chapter seven, this is what they're supposed to do. They are to offer not just the sacrifice, but then also the grain offering. These unleavened and leavened breads. And as we see here in the Psalms, sometimes they would add a drink offering. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the fellowship offering or the peace offering, it's called by both names, uh, it was uh, specifically designed to emphasize relationship with God. Okay. You have the whole burn offering where we are consecrating ourselves completely to the Lord. Okay, just like the animal is burned up completely, so we are to give ourselves completely to God. The sin offering, the guilt offering, these are to emphasize our intentional and unintentional sins. You know, so there's different sacrifices that emphasize different things. The peace offering emphasizes that I'm at peace with God. Hence called the fellowship offering. We are having a relationship with our God. And so the psalmist then has brought his uh, peace offering, his fellowship offering, his thanksgiving offering to the Lord at the temple. And uh, just like any offering, right, you put your hand on the head of the sacrifice, you would kill it. And so the sin of the sinner is symbolically imputed to the animal and the animal dies in the place. The perfection of the animal is symbolically imputed to the sinner, and so now the sinner is consi uh, considered holy and righteous. Okay? But again, instead of burning everything, part of it went to the priest, and part of it was burned, and then the rest they took home and they had a meal. And, uh, and so that's what we're talking about. Here then, the psalmist, as part of his vow, maybe he brought a bull and three sheep, whatever it happened to be, he took them and they were offered there and they brought the meat home and they ate it. They thanked God. Obviously, he thanks God for preserving his life. And then he had a meal, a fellowship meal. In the midst of that, of course, you have the drink offering. You have the grain offering. So uh, here's the idea. Now notice, we, of course, do the same thing. Right When we come to the Lord's table, this is our peace offering. This is our Passover meal. This is where we have fellowship with God and eat with him in this way. 
All right, well, let's look at the, the next line. <clears throat> and again, it's just like the second line in verse 13. On the name of Yahweh, I will call. So again, all this emphasis on prayer again. Um, and uh, again, the clear linking of the cup with the sacrifice. So then in verse 18, my vows to Yahweh, I will repay in the presence now of all of his people. Identical to verse 14. So again, he's keeping his promises publicly, not just at home. Verse 19 then expands on this. In the courts of the house of Yahweh, in your midst, O Jerusalem. So again, he's, he's not doing this off in a corner. He's doing it in the temple courts, primarily the outer court. He is in Jerusalem, where God's house is, God's city is, and of course, God's people. <clears throat> so when we make promises to our God in the midst of our hardships, and we, we uh, promise to do something if he helps us, okay, well, keep those promises publicly. Tell others about God's grace. Write a psalm, maybe. Okay? But certainly do it in a public way. Respond with thanksgiving. Respond with gratitude when God helps. Now, as I've said a number of times here in this section of the Psalms, remember, they sang this psalm during the Passover. This would have been when Jesus and the apostles were headed to um, the Mountain of Olives. They would have been singing this. And so... It was fitting because Yahweh delivered Israel from death, from, from uh, Egypt and the Red Sea. And it's fitting because at the Passover, you are vowing to serve God. You're not just remembering, but you're promising to serve God. Remember, they got all the leaven out and all that sort of thing, right? So you're promising to serve God in every way. And so when we come to the Lord's table, <coughs> excuse me, our fellowship meal, our peace offering, our Passover meal. Let's not just remember, let us give thanks and let's then promise to serve our God in every way. All right, let me end with a, a couple thoughts here. First of all, let's turn to 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Do you remember that Paul uh, is about to die when he writes this letter. He has been rearrested. He is in Rome, and Nero is about ready to chop his head off. And um, so he writes this letter to Timothy, and says, "You know, come as quickly as you can. I want to see you before I die." These kind of things. And so, on his deathbed, you might say, listen to his words in verses seventeen and eighteen. Notice how similar they are to the psalm. 2 Timothy 4, 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the mouth of the lion may have been his first imprisonment, it may have been something more recent. There was some kind of deliverance. And then notice his hope in verse 18 for that final deliverance, the heavenly deliverance, the heavenly life uh, that awaits him. And then notice how he ends <coughs> with praise. Let, uh, the second thing I wanted to mention here uh, as I draw things to a conclusion is that 
the Church of England uh, used to use this psalm on a regular basis. Now, if you've uh, noticed, the Church of England has made some very poor decisions in the last week or two in regard to the, the gay agenda and so forth. But when they were more faithful, they would use this psalm whenever a child was born. Now, we might think, well, why would they do that? But remember, we are living in a culture where there are very few children that die in childbirth and very few women that die in childbirth. Historically, that has not been the case, and certainly in other parts of the world, that is not the case. It still happens in our culture, but just not frequently at all. It used to be that one out of four children or mothers died in childbirth, or even as high as one out of two, depending on... Uh, the, the situation, location, and, and time in history. Um, so with that in mind, it makes sense that Psalm 116 would be sung when a child was born and mother survived and baby survived. Right? Verse 15, precious in the eyes of Yahweh okay, are his people and, and so forth. So um, uh, just a brief mention in that way. And then lastly, if you turn back to the psalm here and the very end of verse 19, as Paul ended his words with praise, so of course here the psalmist does. It ends with hallelujah, praise Yahweh. At all times we should praise him, but especially when there is a near-death experience, especially when God rescues us from some great hardship. Like the psalmist, let's love him. Let's call on him. Let's vow to him and keep our promises. Let's rest in him. And let's give him praise. And so here are a few thoughts here from this psalm. And um, what an encouragement to us, is it not? Um, And so next time we will look at Psalm 117. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, so much for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us and, and uh, uh, given us these, these great truths. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that uh, we are precious to you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your grace by way of covenant through the finished work of, of our substitute through Christ. Um, We are thankful, Lord, that the psalmist could know this, anticipating Christ, and we can know this looking back to him. And uh, just, again, we are um, truly amazed that you uh, consider us as so valuable in your sight, that you would send your son to die that we might live. And that at times you send your angels or reach down, as it were, and you spare us from from great hardship, and we are thankful that you do this. Lord, we are thankful, too, that when that moment of death does come upon us, that you're there with us, and your care and love for us has not changed, even though uh, our sin finally catches up to us and we die. Um, We are thankful again, Lord, that that is not the end, but that, like Paul has said, we will enter that heavenly Uh, land, that place of eternal rest uh, because of your grace to us. And so, Lord, we we pray then 
uh, that you would also strengthen us to keep our promises, to keep our vows. Maybe there are some people here today that have made promises to God. Um, if he would uh, help and so forth, and, and maybe those promises have yet to be fulfilled. And so encourage us, strengthen us, enable us, Lord, to, uh, to, to keep our promises and to, to give of ourselves to you and uh, gratitude and thanksgiving for your, your grace to us. Um, and so, Lord, we, again, thank you for these things, and uh, we rest in it, uh, resting in you. And so we pray this then in Jesus' name, amen.